Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. We look at the stock market and why it goes up and down. We look at financial legislation that can impact your bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we take a deep dive into a financial planning topic to help you understand it better. And then finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question. So if you would like to ask me a financial question, go to askpeggy.com and you can type in your question. I'll get in contact with you and probably get a few more details. And then we'll figure out how to structure an answer that can be educational on the air for the listeners so they can learn from the same things that you have questions about. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update. And this is for the week ending August 16th. Okay, so 2019. And last week is the week that we had a huge decline in the market brought about by an inverted yield curve. So we're going to talk about the markets first, and then I'm going to talk about the inverted yield curve and what I think it means. The good news is after the market just choked, it recovered fairly nicely. And the market actually only closed down the Dow at 1.53%, the S&P 500 down 1.03%, the NASDAQ even less than that at 0.79%. Gold gained a little, 1.03. Oil gained a little bit more than that at 1.22. And right now, the 10-year Treasury yield is at 1.22%. I'm really hoping that it comes up a little bit off of that number because it really, last week, it was the bond market that was in turmoil that led to the stock market reacting. You know, we always talk about the stock market, and the stock market's important, but sometimes the stock market's following the bond market, and that's what happened last week. So what is an inverted yield curve? Well, generally, and there's some logic behind this, there's several theories as to why yield curves are different. To, to my mind, one of them makes so much sense that I've never worried about the others very much. But it says that the longer you let somebody tie up your money, the more interest you're going to want them to pay you to keep it. So in other words, if I borrow $10 from you and I'm going to pay you back tomorrow, you know, maybe I can just even give you back the 10 If we're doing a true legal transaction, I have to pay you a smidge of interest. So I pay you maybe a quarter. I mean, I don't have to pay you much to borrow $10 from you overnight. If I was going to borrow $10 from you for the next 10 years, you would want more interest on that money. And if it were more than $10, if it was $1,000, then for sure you're going to want more interest on it. 
Well, the interest paid on different bonds works the same way. So typically, short-term bonds pay less than long-term bonds. And it's very important to only be looking at one kind of bond. So in this case, we're looking at treasury bonds. We're looking at bonds issued by the U.S. government. And so the yield on a two-year treasury is less than a yield on a 10-year treasury. That just makes sense. Well, sometimes, because remember, just like the stock market, the bond market is always anticipating what it thinks is going to happen next. So interest rates move on expectations. And sometimes this causes the 10-year treasury to pay less than the two-year treasury. So that means that when you tie up your money for 10 years, you're getting less interest on it than you are when you're tying up your money for two years. Now, that bond yield that I read you just a minute ago is the 10-year treasury yield. It's 1.22%. And that was on Wednesday below what the two-year treasuries were paying. What this suggests is that interest rates are going down in the future. That's why the 10-year is only paying, you know, what it is paying because there's an anticipation that rates are dropping and that 10-year rate, that rate that's locked up more, should be locked in at a lower amount because of the anticipation of future rate drops. This is generally indicative of a recession. Why? Because one of the tools that the Fed has to pull us out of a recession is to lower interest rates. So when rates start going down by themselves, there's an expectation that there is going to be a recession. And in fact, inverted yield curves have done a very good time, a very good job predicting, um, predicting recessions. In the last, what is it here, 50 years, we've had seven inverted yield curves, and every single time, we've had seven recessions. So, does this matter to you? Um, well, you know, it might, because certainly seven out of seven is a pretty good track record. And although I think the tariff situation with China is calming down some, there is a concern that perhaps on some of the goods that they were purchasing, that China was purchasing from the United States, maybe they found another um, buyer or a purchase, another source rather. So China has found another place where they can get their soybeans is what I'm trying to say in English. Will they come back and get things like soybeans from us in the future when this silliness is over? I don't know. So could that lead to a recession? It could. It absolutely could. So just for a minute, let's talk about what that would mean to you. It means, first of all, I want you to look at your investment portfolio, and I want you to have a conversation with your certified financial planner practitioner about the risk level in your portfolio. I want you to understand the risk level, and I want to make sure that it is appropriate for your meeting your goals. And then make sure your portfolio is diversified. You don't want to be too much in just one spot because if that one spot goes south, it can take a very long time to recover. 
Remember, in general market downturns, overall market recovery actually begins pretty quickly. It's when people got all wound up in technology in 2000 or all wound up in real estate and um, REITs and things in 2008 that it took a long time to recover. And in some cases, people didn't recover at all if they owned individual holdings. So look at your risk tolerance, make sure you're diversified, make sure that everything is in keeping, that nothing has gone out of balance. Make sure you have your emergency fund. Do everything you can to, you know, just be slightly cautious, but don't panic, okay? And, and this isn't the time to go running for the hills. And now I am not ever going to tell you how to invest your money because that's not what this show is about. But I will say that personally, I am never all in or all out because I'm never that sure. Because I see another potential cause for this inverted yield curve. And I, I have to admit, this is something I'm just sort of saying myself. I'm not reading a lot of articles that are supporting it. But I don't know how much the manipulation of the interest rate environment we've had over the last year is causing the yield curve to invert, just simply because the market doesn't know what to expect next from um, the Federal Reserve. You know, typically the Federal Reserve is, is not a political entity at all, and yet we've seen a 180-degree turnaround. And I understand they're saying they lowered rates a couple of weeks ago because of a potential of a downturn, but there was a lot of pressure to lower the rates as well. So I am not completely convinced that this inverted yield curve is leading to a recession. Now, it might. I don't know. So I want you to take steps, assuming it might happen, but I don't necessarily want you to panic either. And I think that we will have to wait to see how things shake out here over the next several months to see what's happening. But in any case, make sure your risk tolerance level is where you would want it to be and make a financial plan, and that way you can hold to it when times get tough. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And I have two stories to talk to you about today. One is, in full disclosure, I think if you read the Wall Street Journal, you may have seen the article about the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards and how their website was not doing a good job of providing a complete regulatory history of some of its certificates. Now, this is an important story for a lot of reasons, not the least of which I want to talk about it because I am such a believer in the CFP marks and have said that, you know, if you're working with a financial planner, I think you need to work with a CFP certificate. So when there is an issue like this, I think that it keeps my credibility with you if I talk to you about what happened. And truthfully, I don't know why they didn't have the entire regulatory history of all advisors on the site. I know that to a great extent, your history is self-reported, and I know that they've made some changes and some steps now to remind people to go to FINRA Broker Check. And so on the show today, I want to tell you to do the same thing. If you are considering working with a 
financial person, whether it's a planner or an advisor or a broker, you want to go to the FINRA, F-I-N-R-A, that's a regulatory body, broker check. And even an investment advisor will have their name there. So if you'll Google it, just Google FINRA broker check, you'll find the link to it. And then you can type in the last name. And I think the state is all you have to include. And it will bring up the person that you're considering working with. You'll be able to see if they have a regulatory history or not. You know, if there's a lesson to be learned here from the board, it's that people with with bad backgrounds don't like to disclose them. So now the board has added that same recommendation to go, you know, look at the regulatory history. You can also go to the SEC site, I think, and find things, or the state securities site and find things. And whether or not people are listed on the SEC or the state will have to do with how big their firm is. So just because you don't find someone on one of those two sites doesn't mean really anything. It just means they're probably on the other site. So it's very important the CFP board is taking steps. I want to be sure you're always working with someone who's reputable. I want to make sure that those people handling your money are acting in your best interest, that you know how they're being compensated, and that they're competent. And having the ability to check their regulatory background is a big piece of that. So the second story today, and I want to, um, this could be long, but I'm going to make it shorter than it would have to be. And I'm really bringing this up again because we've had, you know, the whole SEC fiduciary rule and they didn't want to do the fiduciary rule. They did the best interest rule. And so they've really kind of set themselves out as a standard bearer. Well, apparently in some of their consumer information that they published um, the week of August 16th, There was an investor bulletin that was supposed to be describing indexed annuities. However, rather than describing indexed annuities, it described another kind of annuity known as a buffer or structured annuity. Okay, first of all, I find this amusing that even the SEC can't tell annuities apart. However, it's really important that you understand what you own. And I don't really want to go into the details of these two kinds of annuities because it would take a lot of time. And you're welcome to look it up. I mean, you you can find articles on what happened. But you want to be sure that you know what you own. And when you get information that's wrong that the SEC put out, now it's caught almost immediately because the people who sold indexed annuities were really angry because it misdescribed what an indexed annuity was. So they caught it pretty quickly. But we have to be careful. And this is why it's really important that the organizations that are regulating us and providing consumer information understand what they're doing. And we need to be careful that things are double-checked And also, it puts more onus on you, the investor. You have to do your own due diligence. And if something doesn't make sense, you're going to have to find another source. Even if the source that you found it in originally was the SEC, and I know that that's putting a lot of burden on you. It's one reason why I try to help explain things to people 
but it's very important that you, as the consumer, know what you're invested in, know what the characteristics are, and read enough to reach a consensus on what you own rather than any one single description. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and today we're going to talk about disability insurance. Disability insurance is a kind of protection that most people basically know what it is, but most people also don't choose to buy. And I am not going to tell you that you should buy disability insurance, but I do want you to understand the characteristics of it and some of the pitfalls you might run into. So disability insurance is coverage that, is, that occurs while you're working, okay? So the minute you retire, you no longer need a disability policy. In fact, I had a client come in just a few days ago and they were 70 and retired and still had disability insurance and I said, why? And they said, I don't know. It's like, you probably don't need that. We need to look at it a little bit more. But disability doesn't pay once you're retired. Instead, it covers what happens if you can't work. Disability insurance covers about 60% of your salary. So if something happens and you can't work and you have a disability policy, it's not going to replace your paycheck it's going to cover about 60% of your paycheck. That's really important to know because sometimes people will buy a disability policy and say, well, I don't need an emergency fund. Yes, you do, because you still have those bills you had before. And I'm going to bet that most people listening to this actually spend more than 60% of their income every month on non-discretionary expenses, that your spending money isn't 40% of your paycheck. And as long as that's the case, then you're going to need a little bit in savings in addition to the disability policy. Disability comes two ways. It's short-term disability or long-term disability. Now, short-term disability can cover a period of months, and generally it maxes at two years. The elimination period for short-term disability or that period of time before the policy starts to pay is very short. So almost immediately, you'll start earning benefits, but it taps out at the end of two years. Long-term disability is designed to pay your expenses until you are 65 years old, and it's generally structured in a way to work with short-term disability. So you might have a long-term disability policy that has a two-year um, two period at the beginning that it doesn't pay. That's because they're assuming you bought short-term disability for that period of time. So don't let the two-year elimination period on the long-term disability throw you off. They're just assuming you also got short-term. Now, many times, especially short-term disability is offered as a fringe benefit at your workplace. Something you really have to remember here, okay? Pay attention if you're kind of dozing at this point. Listen to this. 
If your employer pays the premium for your disability policy, when you receive the benefits, they are taxable to you. However, if you pay the premium of your disability policy, then the benefit comes to you income tax-free. And that's the same whether it's short-term disability or long-term disability. So sometimes in your benefits package, you'll have the choice of paying for some of the benefits out of your own salary, and then sometimes the employer will chip in and buy you other benefits. It might be to your best interest to go ahead and pay the disability out of your own paycheck so that if you needed the benefit, you're not paying income tax on top of a, um, on top of a 60% reduced benefit. Okay, so you could lose 30% of 60%, and that's not going to leave you with a lot of money to pay your bills with. So, you know, do your own planning, but you might really look at that. Often, long-term disability is sold as private insurance, although I've seen some, um, some business owners offer both. So disability insurance comes as different kinds of occupations that it covers. It's your own occupation, it's a modified version of your own occupation, or it's any occupation. And so it pays benefits based off of how you fall in those categories. So if it's your own occupation, it pays benefits if you can't do your own occupation. And that can be pretty narrowly defined, like surgeon. Modified occupation, it doesn't pay benefits if you can do a version of what you did for a living. So maybe you're not a surgeon, but you can be a doctor. Well, it doesn't cover that. Any occupation is the most restrictive. And any occupation disability policy says that if you can do anything at all to earn a living, not taking any account into the salary you got, then your benefits policy does not pay. There is no disability coverage. So sometimes people think that they will use Social Security disability rather than buying their own policy. First, it's tricky to qualify for Social Security disability. And even if you meet most of the hurdles, you should understand it is in any occupation coverage. So if you can do anything at all, it doesn't pay. So if you were a surgeon and now you can work in a restaurant, you can work. Social Security disability doesn't cover you. So you need to be very careful if your life is built around an assumed income level and you don't have a way to replace that if you become disabled, that you carry the coverage that allows your lifestyle to remain relatively intact. I mean, it's going to be blown up anyway because if you've had a disability this severe, there's all kinds of other monsters lurking out there. But be very careful that you know what it covers and what it doesn't and whether or not the benefits are taxable and whether or not this makes sense for you. I think a lot of people don't buy disability insurance because they don't understand it. If you understand it and decide you don't need it, that is fabulous. But I don't want you to not select it because you don't understand it. And that's why we're talking about it today. <laughs>
Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And remember that if you would like to submit a question to the show, you can go to askpeggy.com, A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and type a question where you find the place to do it on the homepage. So my question from today is, Peggy, I have a small business retirement plan. What is my deadline for making employer contributions? And I don't know about you guys, but I can't believe that business taxes, even with an extension, are due next month. This is August 19th, and your business income tax return is due September 15th, even with the extension. So TikTok, if you were putting it off because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changes, you're going to have to start doing it. And that extension-related tax due date ties directly to funding small business retirement plans. So the two kinds of small business retirement plans I want to talk about today are the SEP and the SIMPLE. And the easiest way to tell them apart, and and there's many, many characteristics, but the easiest way is remember with the SEP, all of the money goes in on behalf of the employer and it has a higher deferral limit. The SIMPLE allows employee contributions as well, as well as then either an employer deferral or match, and it has a lower contribution level. I actually think SIMPLEs are a little bit more common than SEPs simply because most small business owners don't want to have to put all the money in themselves. So with the SIMPLE, that employer either matches or provides non-elective contributions to the employee accounts, and that money is due by September 15th on the due date of the taxes, including any extensions. So, I mean, if we get lucky this year and the 15th is on a weekend, then we get like an extra day. But basically, you've got about a month. And so you didn't have to actually put the money in their account until this time, the employee has to have it into their account within 30 days. So if an employee is deferring money and you're taking it out of their payroll, that needed to go in within 30 days of the end of the month, or you're in trouble with the Department of Labor and a number of other places. But the money that you're putting in doesn't have to go in until the day you file your taxes. And there's a correlation there because remember, all of that comes out as a deduction on your taxes. A SEP works the same way, except now all the money is coming from the employer. And so that money goes into the account no later than the date that taxes are due, including extensions. So if you were um, handling a small business retirement plan last year, if you've got a simple or you've got a SEP, and you were waiting to put the money in as long as you possibly could, you've got a month and you need to make sure that money is in and credited to their accounts by the time your taxes are filed. It'll cause a lot of issues if you don't. Now, if you're just a normal employee and you're thinking, wow, I have this long to file or to put money in my IRA. No, you don't. 
IRA contribution limits or contribution due date is the day the taxes are due, and it does not include the extension. So if you are going to fund an IRA for 2018, it had to be in by April 15th of this year. It's too late. They give the business owner an extension that they do not give the average citizen. It's important to know that so that you can be sure that everything's done and you don't try to put money in mischaracterized because that can create a bit of an accounting nightmare for you. So just make sure you get the contributions in, get your taxes filed, and everything will be well. I can't believe how fast the week went again. It just seems like every show goes faster and faster. See you next time. Bye. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.